God speaks to us in his word in Romans 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be the word of the Lord. Thanks be. I tried to get them to read the whole book of Romans to you guys, but for some reason they only read one verse. So you're welcome for that. Just one verse today. And uh, man, really are glad you guys are here. My name is Ben. Uh, would love to meet you if I haven't met you. Uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors of Frontline and the lead pastor here in Shawnee. If you have any questions at all about our church, uh, if you have any questions about the internship or whatever it is, man, we would love to talk with you, especially if you have questions about how to follow Jesus, anything that we've said today. Um, our heart is that you don't leave here thinking about uh, whether or not we're good communicators or we hope to good, be good communicators or whether or not we have a cool building or whatever. Our heart would be that you leave here thinking a lot about Jesus. And, um, and so that would be the hope, that would be the prayer today. So if you have any questions, again, we would love to talk with you. All right, hey, we're gonna do something before I jump into the sermon today. For the charismatic people in, in the room, that's people that are comfortable with the Holy Spirit, um, this is gonna be right up your alley. For those that are not charismatic in the room, that's people that, who are not comfortable with the Holy Spirit, you're not gonna be very comfortable with this probably. So we're gonna do something that requires a use of your hand. Stretch out your hand. We're gonna to pray towards this baptism. Stretch out your hand. Again, you don't have to if you're not comfortable, but. Well, maybe you should, even if you're not comfortable. Let's close our eyes. And I'm gonna ask you to fill the room with prayer. We are going to pray for all of your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends that don't know the Lord. Pray that this baptism would be full to the brim um, dang near every week or every week the rest of this year. Let's pray. Pray out loud. Fill up the room with your voice. Pray for lost people. Pray that they would come to know the Lord. Pray for this neighborhood that would be blanketed with the gospel. Pray for OBU. Pray for the person that knows church but doesn't know God. Yeah. Amen. There's something that happens when you stop thinking so much about yourself, when you stop thinking so much about things that don't even deserve the time to think about. How do I feel? How is this going? Is this church the right temperature? I don't know. Look at the stained glass, whatever it is. When you divert your attention to the thing that God fashioned you to do, which is to glorify him and to not think about yourself and to think about other people who do not know him. And then you pray for them. It is amazing what happens in the room. It's like all of a sudden, okay, yeah, our attention was on us and now it's on the Prince of Peace and it's on the kingdom of God and not my kingdom. And my fear, listen, today is not gonna be a long sermon, but. This little verse in Romans 12 is so important for our church because my fear is that we are going to slide into one of two ditches, is that either we're gonna go into complacency or comfortability and just be like, this is good, you know? We're having a good time, right? <laughs> 
This is a great church. We all agree, this is great. Yeah, this is great. God's doing good stuff, that's great. We go, okay, mission accomplished. And then we just sit still. Or we look back and we go, man, 2023, if you're a part of this church, like we prayed for ridiculous things and God tripled what we prayed for in baptisms. And we started with praying for ridiculous things. And it's like, great, man, praise God. Look at what God did. Which by the way, it's good for us to remember God. There's a term for that in the Bible. They would put stones out in places where God did mighty work. Stones of remembrance called Ebenezer's. That's not just a part of a Christmas tale. And you would look back for the purpose of going like, look what God did. But the reason that you would remember what God did was that so you give glory to him for all that he's gonna do. All that you've done and all that you will do. So my, my fear is that we have, there's two ditches that one, we're going to slide into comfortability or we're going to just like pat ourselves on the back for all that's happened. And the problem is, is that both of those things do something that we can't afford to do. They make us miss God. They make us miss God. I want to celebrate all that God's done. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I'm so proud of this church, man. I, I am like, this is a pastor's dream. This church is a pastor's dream. You guys are wonderful. But if we start to like really just believe that and not put the gas pedal down, we're in serious trouble. What we're gonna have is a term that we cannot afford to have as long as we're alive on earth, and that is the word complacency. We cannot afford to be complacent. What complacency it forces a, complacency is how you know that you have missed the heart of God for a season of life. This little verse in Romans 12, 11 packs a serious punch. And I think to stay with that analogy, it punches complacency just right in the face. Complacency doesn't stand a chance when you come to Romans 12, which says, don't be lazy about zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And complacency is the thing that God needs to come against because here's why. Because complacency does all kinds of things to us. It steals our focus. It kills your purpose. It steals your joy. Some of us are wondering why we don't have joy. And one of the primary reasons why you don't and why I don't is because all we're doing is thinking about how we get more joy. All we're doing is thinking about, and that leads to a cheap imitation of joy called happiness. All we're thinking about is how we can be comfortable. And in turn, the very thing that you set out to get by being comfortable and by not taking risks is the thing that you miss because you set out to be comfortable. Complacency steals our focus, it kills our purpose, it steals our joy, and the worst of all, it delights the devil. He loves it. Satan loves complacency. He wants you to be so comfortable. He wants you to have your nice church with your people, your spot in the row, your community group that stays the same, that never does anything missional for 100 years. No outsiders, no room for, he wants you to like, <laughs> He wants you to live in a way that's like, I know exactly, I've got all of my life in order and it's very riskless. 
That's what the devil wants you to do. Satan wants that from you. It delights him complacency. And here comes Romans 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. I don't want to miss God. I don't want you to miss God. I don't want our church to waste our life. James 4 says that. It asks that question. That's the question we're asking today. What is your life? First Peter, all flesh is like grass. In all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. James 4, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Hey, wake up your heart today. Stop wasting your life. Start spending your life. If you, if you are saved, if you are in fact saved by God, it is God who did that work in you. It was not because you are smarter or more equipped than anybody else. God woke your heart up. If there are people around you who don't know the Lord, God sovereignly, who saved you to the uttermost without you giving so much as a thought to God. He saved you, and then that same God who is sovereign over salvation uniquely and sovereignly placed you in the neighborhood that you're in, in the house that you're in, in the job that you're in, in the town that you're in, to be there and give your life away. So don't be slothful in zeal. Do not waste your life. Let's look into this. And let's perk up and pay attention to what the Lord might have for us today. First thing is this. Again, do not be slothful in zeal. Zeal, the word, is used 19 times in the Bible. Um, a lot in the Old Testament. Zeal is an interesting word. Zeal means several things. It means enthusiasm. It also means anger. It's the connotation that it carries when you use zeal, when you are able to tell if someone is zealous it's the connotation of them being red-faced, having blood rushed to their head now because they are so angry or they are so enthusiastic or whatever it is. It's that type of person that you've got to hold back from. A, he's just so red-faced. That zeal. Do not be slothful with red-faced enthusiasm or anger or whatever. Don't be slothful in zeal. In 2 Samuel, Saul... Um, had now at this point really walk, walked away from the Lord. All he wanted to do was protect his own image and protect his people. So he had zeal, but 2 Samuel describes the zeal for Saul as having zeal for Israel and not for God. He had zeal for his people and against his enemies. The psalmist talks a lot about zeal. He has, one of the psalms says, I have zeal against my enemies because they forget your words, O oh God. It's like, I feel that way against myself. <laughs> I get zealous against myself because I forget the word of God. There's other times in the Old Testament it's used for um, the zeal of the house of God or the nation of God and not just the people of God, but the temple of God. Zeal. The, as a matter of fact, in one scripture, 2 Kings, I believe it is, the, the term that we're going to go back to, zeal for your house will consume me. We're gonna learn about how Jesus um, used that and was referencing that in a little bit. In Isaiah 9, one of my favorite scriptures, Isaiah 9 prophesies the coming Messiah. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. 
And it talks about how the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. All of these wonderful things about Jesus. And then it says this at the end, it says, how will it happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it, which implies this beautiful thing that God's not reluctant to save us. He's actually can't wait. He can't wait. He has zeal towards us. So zeal is this word that the Bible uses to express a feeling, a devotion. And here's Paul in the New Testament charging us to be zealous. Charging us. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. What he says, I think, is interesting because if zeal is about devotion and affection, but even past that point, if it's about like being consumed with something or having enthusiasm to the point of being red-faced, there's a lot of people in the room right now that are going, well, I don't do emotions. So you can have your zeal. But I don't know how you would get around Romans 12 when it commands you to be zealous. Which gets me to think, okay, if it commands us to be zealous but we don't have zeal, maybe we're actually lopsided, maybe we're actually misguided on whether or not you have zeal at all. Because the truth is this, you were made with zeal. You have it within you. That devotion and affection and red-faced thing, you have it within you. I'll explain to you a few scenarios that you inevitably have it. If there are moms in the room, I promise you, you have zeal for your kids. Amen? A lot of dads have zeal for their kids. Um, if there are any new relationships in the room, like new in the past like 20 minutes, like maybe you met on the way to church, I don't know how it worked, but you have a lot of zeal. When you first meet somebody, you're like, I thought there were no more perfect people. And here's this perfect person. Zeal changes over time. <laughs> you have zeal for a lot of things. Now to get a little more personal, a lot of you have zeal for your paycheck. You have zeal for what you have, what you think you deserve. The whole world is zealous. And I'm not just talking about um, sort of bigotry, I'm not just talking about like even religious zealots, I'm talking about people and their idealism, their ideologies of how even gender should be viewed in this world. Why are people so mad? Why? Zeal is, it is woven into us. You have zeal. This is important because it says, do not be slothful in zeal, comma, be fervent in the spirit. Serve who? The Lord. I'm praying that we face our zealousness today and we redirect our zeal. There's three quick things that I want you to see about what it means to have zeal for God. The first is this, zeal for pursuing Christ. Zeal for pursuing Christ. Which means this, God has saved you, Christ has saved you because of how good he is, because of how much power he has over death and over hell. But it doesn't stop there. I think a lot of us think that when we become saved, then all of a sudden it's good, it's a done deal. But what I would encourage you is that, no, 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 that's just the start of your following Jesus. 
You just at that point been given the, the capability to even decide if, whether or not you want to follow Jesus. And then you do the hard work of counting the cost to pursue him. Paul wrote something really profound in Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul, okay, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, Paul was this man who was the, the zealot of zealots. He, and we're about to learn about it. He, uh, Paul's whole life and job before he became a Christian, before God radically gave him no other choice than to be saved, literally, God just saved him. <laughs> before that, he persecuted Christians. And when I say persecuted, I mean he literally killed them. Paul did. His name was Saul then, but God changed his name to Paul, which is what he does when he saves us. He changes our name. Paul is about to give us an account of his life towards zeal. And here's what he says. If anyone, which, hold on, I got to mention this. The apostle Paul who murdered Christians, God radically saved, changed his life, planted churches, established elders, was constantly having to convince churches that, that he knew what he was talking about. Which by the, so the story of the arrogance of the church has been around for a long time. I'm just saying. In Philippians 4, here's what he says. If anyone thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he was for sure a Jew, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Meaning he's, what he's saying is that I was better at being a Jew than any of you. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now listen to this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you possibly, Paul, why would you possibly count all of that as loss? Here's why. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Surpassing worth. Knowing Christ is worth all of that and then some. It goes way past all of the stuff I could have had or that I had. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And not just that. I'm not just here because I'm Paul, I, he's not just here because he's given us this martyr speech. He says, not only did I lose them, I'm glad. I count them as rubbish because I want Christ more than anything, more, more than I may gain Christ. He is worth it all. Zeal for pursuing, pursuing Christ. Also, zeal for people. The greatest commandment, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You think about the fruit of the Spirit, it's interesting how pursuing Christ gives you that fruit of the Spirit, but how the fruit of the Spirit can only ever be tested, really, in how you treat other people. <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of pursuing and knowing Christ is that we will love people. 
to love your neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself, meaning that you tolerate things. And you're okay when they just don't listen to you or you're okay with when they just act a fool or whatever it is. Man, I felt so much conviction thinking about this. We've been preaching a little bit on this over the past several weeks. I have my neighbors, I have a great relationship with all of my neighbors. There's one person (laughs) who in particular just has, just don't like me for whatever reason. And I'm always like, you know what? I've got 10 neighbors, nine out of 10 is pretty good. Just kind of, and the Lord convicts me. It's like, maybe you should treat her, according to the Bible, I should treat her better than any of the rest of them. Zeal for people, zeal pursuing Christ, and then zeal for even your enemies. And then zeal for your church. Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are the household of faith. You will reap if you do not give up. Do good to everyone, especially your church. Some of us in the room, it's time to get right about the way we think about the church. Be here, be committed to the people, have zeal for them. And then lastly, zeal for prayer. Zeal for prayer, red-faced pursuit of it. Throughout history, there have been multiple revivals. Um, I could go on and on, but we'll just, I'll just give you a brief overview of recent history in the 1700s, the Great Awakening, end of 1700s. Uh, many people in the colonies that gave their life to Jesus. The 1800s, the Second Great Awakening, Middle 1800s, uh, people like Charles Finney and John Wesley and all kinds. Uh, There was a kind of a third great awakening after the world wars. You had people who returned to Christ and and, uh, gave their life to Jesus. And then just in the West, there's been multiple, but also around that time you had in Wales, uh, this called the Welsh Revival, which is a pretty powerful story. That was one year of revival. 1904 to 1905, I think I got that right, maybe 05 and 06, 04 and 05, 365 days, give or take, 100,000 people got saved. Um, the Moravian church was one of my favorite, I love the Moravians. Um, they, uh, they just set the standard for missionary work in the world. And uh, Count Zinzendorf, that's, say that 12 times fast. And uh, John Hess, anyway, these guys were incredible. They were the reason that John Wesley gave his life to Jesus, but uh, they had a prayer service that lasted for 100 years. And uh, 100 years of prayer meetings. You know how it started? It was just a service where the gospel was preached um, and people started repenting, confessing. The pastor said, you need the cross, you need to confess, you need to repent. He was doing a lot like me. It's like, don't be slothful in zeal. And then just, it happened for 100 years. The service just kept on going. Azusa Street in 1906 in California started the modern kind of move of the Holy Spirit in um, America. Then the post-World Wars, Billy Graham, et cetera, in the 50s, the 40s, and the 50s. And then what you had in the 60s is the Jesus uh, movement. People call themselves the Jesus people. Some of my favorite, absolute favorite people I've ever met. Some are in this room right now. Um, And then... 
so that led up to, and he had multiple other little out, little outbursts. Toronto had a revival that kind of made its way down to Kansas City, had a revival. Anyway, little things, but uh, it, about every 20, 30, 40 years, just in those millenniums or in those couple to three or four decades, uh, centuries, you'll have, um, you'll have a revival. And uh, when the 20, you know, right now, 2024, things were happening at Asbury, praise God, but we're due. <laughs> we're due for revival. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're not gonna waste your life and you're gonna die one day, and then you face the rest of eternity. And James asked the question, what is your life? And my question is, is like, where's our zeal for prayer for revival? There's a few things um, that were common leading up to revival. Two things were always coupled. There were very bad times and there were very desperate people. So just say yes if you think we're in bad times. Now say yes if you think we're desperate enough. We need to be a praying people. Zeal, commitment, confession, repentance, worship, surrender. God says do not be slothful with zeal. It's interesting to think about zeal being something you can be lazy at. Set your feet towards zeal for the Lord. Pray. Second Chronicles is a promise. It's not, this is not a maybe, this is a promise. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, uh, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name will pray, humble themselves, confess, turn to the Lord, I will heal their land. It's a promise. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit. Be fervent in the spirit. Fervency here in spirit is not some like mystical, weird Greek idea about the human spirit and that's the, only the place we need to be fervent. This, another way to write this would be be fervent in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Fervency in Greek is ziontes, which I probably really uh, just botched that pronunciation and uh, you can talk to me after it's over with, I guess, if you know Greek, but it also another translation for it is thermos. Thermos being that thing that keeps something hot. You put coffee in a thermos because you want it to stay hot. And this kind of thermos is in this way, be a thermos in the spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like what is hot must not get cold. We need to fan the flame. That's what Paul tells Timothy, fan the flame in you. We, we need to be people that say, that go like, man, we pursued the spirit one year or one month and that was great. Now we can stop. No, 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 no. The Bible says to earnestly, meaning both in zeal and faithfulness, earnestly desire the gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Being fervent in spirit means we are a thermos. We wanna pray for baptisms, we wanna pray for the power of God, we wanna pursue the gifts of the spirit and pursue the giver. To have eagerness for the power of the Holy Spirit to be released. 
Some things are required for this. You've got to come to the idea and the understanding that obedience comes before trust. Most of us sit in our life when we're waiting on God to prove himself before we obey him. We go, well, if he would just prove that he's trustworthy, which he already has, then we'll obey him. That's not how it works. To follow Christ means obedience first, and then these things will be added. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of these things will be added. It also says in the Psalms, your word, listen to this. This is a verse we know. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. I'm already walking. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. It's earnestly desiring, it's a humble and submitted heart. It's for all of us in the room, this is what's required. It's for all of us in the room to say, you know what? I don't think I have the credentials to question the Trinity. I don't think I have the theological prowess to question whether or not the Holy Spirit is who I think he should be or is somebody else or if he even exists. I'm just, I'm offering you some humility now. Let's not act like we're God. We need to trust God as he is and be obedient. Those are things that are required. Here's some things that are not required. Perfect faith, not required. Perfect understanding, not required. Perfect theology, not required. What is required is this, a pure and contrite heart before God. He does not despise. In 2 Corinthians, Paul again is writing to a church that's like questioning him. And he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to God. A requirement is a sincere and pure devotion. Not required is that your thoughts be perfectly in line with God's. God is the only one who has perfect thoughts in line with himself. Sincere and pure devotion. Be fervent in the spirit. Be fervent. You're gonna hear me say this a billion times this year. Be fervent. Keep pursuing. Fan the flame. Lay down your thoughts. Trust God. Allow him to change you by the renewal of your mind. And then finally, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful with zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Ephesians 4 is this manifesto of how the church should function, what my role should be, what yours should be. Most of you in the room, whether consciously or subconsciously, you think, I like to go to a church where I know the pastor is gonna do all the work for me or he's gonna do the work of ministry or that's just kind of how, that's kind of the water we swim in in small town America is like, the pastor really is a good Christian, therefore I will go there. Well, we want our pastors to be good Christians. I wanna be a good Christian, but I'm not here to follow Jesus for you. And the other thing I'm not here to do is be the professional Christian model. Model it professionally, how to do it. That's not what we're here for. Ephesians four says, God equips me to do one thing, to equip the saints for the work of all ministry. Teachers, prophets, preachers, pastors, whatever, equip you to do the work of ministry. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in, in spirit, period. Serve the Lord, period. That's for you. Hebrews 10 says it this way. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, that is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Basically what Hebrews is saying is, go to church. <laughs> and don't just show up to an event, be the church. Don't neglect to meet together. And here's the thing about it is, when we turn inward, when we... This is how we started this. When we look at only ourselves, then all that we judge our church or our friends or our pastor or the world by is what have you done for me lately? That's what we judge. We say, well, I, they really aren't doing enough. Are they really whatever? That is a very inward way to look. And what I'm trying to get you to do is stop looking so much inward and look outward. Don't forsake the gathering up Serve the Lord. Stop serving only your interests and mine too. We get consumed by what we have or what we don't have or what was owed to us or what we thought we were going to get or what we needed or what we, we get consumed by it. Ironically, we neither control our outcomes or fill the voids. Matthew 6, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, the, and then all of these things will be added to you. Redirect your thinking. Let your thought, let your mind, let your heart be focused on Jesus. And then... I could get you to see it because it's like it's so simple and profound at the same time and then all the things that you have striven for all the things that you have white knuckled for all those things that you have lost your mind over first off God will change the direction of your heart the more you seek him the more you want him over all things and second then he'll give you the things that you need he's good All these things will be added. Put your mind on Christ and put your hands to work serving him. And of course, Jesus did this more than anyone. John 2, there's a moment where Jesus walks up to his church, his church, he's the head of the body, in the court of the Gentiles right outside of it, they're people selling things. They've turned it into like a storefront, basically. They're actually taking advantage of people. The Bible says that he was so moved with zeal that he went and uh, fashioned a whip, homemade whip. Don't raise your hand because we don't, I, don't want, I don't want you to be judged, but anybody here ever made a whip? That takes time. Braiding, threading, leather, the whole time. Do you think this was an? Uh, do you think this was an impulsive decision? 
takes the whip back, drives them out of the temple, preaches against them. Jesus was zealous for his body. And then this little statement um, in John 2, 17. And then his disciples remembered, because imagine watching this. The man who's healed the lame, <laughs> so patient, peace. And then his disciple remembers that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I, <laughs> look, Jesus in his life was on his way to the cross. He had more zeal than all of us combined. He gives us zeal in the thing that, where his zeal and his life met and culminated like the crescendo was how he set his face like flint towards the cross. And then on the cross, you've got the zeal of the Trinity being met in Jesus. And his zeal for us, his zeal for us, his zeal for his own glory, his zeal to do the will of the Father, his zeal for his passion for salvation, his zeal, his Old Testament zeal, his anger towards his enemies, death, hell, all met in one moment on the cross. And, you know, and then his zeal, it's like it didn't stop there. He's at work now. The first verse in Acts 1 says, I'm writing to you about all the work that Jesus began to do and teach. So what you're feeling right now is the zeal of God for you. That same zeal that drove out the money changers and that went to the cross he has for you individually. That's power. We're gonna take communion today. We're gonna take it. We're gonna ask the Lord to change our steps to help us be obedient. We're gonna, I'm hoping that there's many in the room that are gonna surrender some things to him. I really hope that there's several in the room that maybe will surrender their life. And then you're gonna be dismissed through a benediction and there's a door right there with lots of ministries for you to go and do what Galatians 6 says. Don't grow weary of doing good, especially those who are the household of faith. Serve. There's a lot in the church now. You've been here a while, and it's time for you to jump in and be a part of it. I love this moment in our service because the table of the Lord is, it is built in. It's easy to like, I think, to just go to a church and just kind of listen and then sneak out the door. When you take communion every Sunday, it just doesn't allow for that. You have to come face to face with yourself. Let's stand together.